For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this being Christmas time, I want to read the Christmas story. In Luke chapter 1, verse 26, it says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God into a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then Mary said unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For with God nothing shall be impossible. And Mary said, Behold the handmaiden of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. Folks, there's a lot left out of that story. It's interesting in my thinking that the, the birth of Jesus is referred to in only two of the four Gospels. Matthew gives a little bit of a summary of these things that took place. Mark begins, the Gospel of Mark begins with the anointing of Jesus in the, uh, in the beginning of his ministry. And then John does the same. He begins his Gospel account with Jesus entering into his public ministry. Luke was considered, Luke was a, a physician, we know, from the things that the Bible tells us. And he was saved under Paul's ministry. And he became one of Paul's closest companions, traveling and ministry companions. And he was known for his thoroughness in the things that he wrote. He authored the, not only the gospel of, uh, that bears his name, but he also wrote the book of Acts. And the detail that he gives is unprecedented and unparalleled. He, in certain places in the book of Acts, he gives uh, the, the uh, magistrate's name and then the, the deputy magistrate's name. He it was just one to research the things that he wrote and that the Holy Spirit saved for us much more so than any of the other gospel accounts. There's no mention in this story that we just read of the purpose of Jesus being the Son of God come to the earth. It doesn't tell anything about his crucifixion. It doesn't say anything about God's purpose for him. And folks, Jesus had two purposes, and really they're just part of the same one. And that is, number one, to reveal the Father to us, and number two, to die for our sins. The next thing that it says happens is that Mary goes to her cousin Elizabeth, and it says as soon as Mary came into the, to the house or the room where, Mary, where um, Elizabeth was, that the baby that was in Elizabeth, which was John the Baptist, leaped in her womb. Now, folks, that's pretty good for what the abortionists tell us is a mass of, of cells and without life. The first one to recognize Jesus was an unborn baby. Well, if we put ourselves in Mary's position, we would certainly, as quickly as possible, go on the Internet and find out, search under Google for virgin birth. But folks, 
the virgin birth was something that was widely known of. It was one of the prophecies that was well taught, referred to in the synagogues. You may remember that in Nazareth, when Jesus goes back to his hometown, he's unable, because of the unbelief of the people, he's unable to perform any mighty works or miracles of healing. The only thing that the Bible says was that he was able to do was heal folks with just a little bit wrong with them, minor issues, and not something big or, or great as far as sickness is concerned. And one of the things that they did, one of the things that the, the people said that exhibited their lack of faith was referring to his father, Joseph. They said, is this not Joseph's son? Now, the implication of the meaning behind that, folks, is that if they knew who Jesus' father was, then he couldn't be born of a virgin. And so they thought they knew who he was. They thought they knew his, where his beginnings were. But the point is, they thought or they were aware, the common people were aware of the virgin birth prophecy. The Bible also tells us about the prophecy of Jesus being born in Bethlehem. You remember when the wise men came from the east sometime after Jesus was born, he went, they went to Herod to find out where this newborn king was. And Herod freaked out about this. He didn't know anything about it. And so he called the religious leaders to him, and the religious leaders referred to the prophecy in Micah chapter 5, verse 3, I think it is, that Bethlehem would be the place where the Messiah was born. So these things were, if not widely known, commonly known among the Jews. Mary was about 15, maybe 16, when this happened. And then we know uh, when... Jesus was born, I mean. And then we know that Jesus ministered on the earth 32, 33 years before his crucifixion. That would make Mary about 48, maybe 49 years old. And she continued to live for many years. You may remember when Jesus was on the cross, one of the last things that he did was that he spoke to John about taking care of Mary and taking her in as his own mother. John settled during the first generation of the church. He settled in Ephesus and Mary lived there with him under his care for many years, maybe up to 20 years. We don't know exactly how long she lived, but it was well-known, and she was highly respected among the church. People would visit with her and talk with her about Jesus, people that didn't know him when he was still here on the earth. And so Mary paid, played a significant role in the early church. Now, folks, put yourself in Mary's position To be impregnated by the Holy Spirit, overshadowed by the Holy Spirit, and to carry a child and give birth to a child that no matter what anybody else thought, no matter what anybody else might have known or didn't know, this was a creation of God himself. The virgin birth is important. In this respect, not only the miraculous aspect of his birth, but the sperm of man had to be bypassed in order for Jesus to be born into righteousness and born holy. Now, there are some interesting things about the 
relationship that Jesus had with his mother. One of those things is in John chapter 2. John tells us about the wedding feast at Cana where Jesus turned water into wine. Mary is a perplexing, plays a perplexing role in this, this story. Mary comes to Jesus during the wedding feast and says they've run out of wine. Now, folks, let me ask you the question. Why would Mary bring that to Jesus? Why would Mary tell Jesus about the wine shortage for the feast? Jesus gets on to her a little bit and says, Woman, what have I to do with thee? My hour is not yet come. It indicates that Jesus was not, at least at that time, maybe minutes later things changed, but he was not of the impression or the understanding that he was supposed to do anything about it. So Mary turns to the servants after being mildly rebuked by her son and says, whatever he tells you to do, do it. Now, folks, that's a strange thing for her to do. The Bible tells us specifically after he turns the water into wine that this was the first miracle that he performed. So why would Mary place such a value or an importance on obeying Jesus' words? The only thing that makes any sense with, to me and brings understanding to this story is if she has, has experienced in some way or form Jesus either doing the miraculous or certainly something supernatural. Now, if we think about that, we have to realize that Jesus, there were two phases in, of Jesus' life. The first phase was what was which in which he grew up in what we would identify in a normal manner the second phase is when jesus is anointed by the holy ghost and begins to do healings and signs and wonders and miracles as a part of his earthly ministry but folks remember that jesus was the son of god when he was 20 just as much as he was the son of God when he turned 30 and entered his public ministry. So if he was just as much the son of God, we know he was righteous. We know he kept the law of Moses without um, fail. We know, therefore, that he was a covenant keeper. So before Jesus was ever anointed of the Holy Ghost and before he ever uh, performed miracles, as a covenant keeper, as a keeper of the law of Moses, there had to be things that he did to benefit his family. The Jewish law and the Jewish custom would identify that Jesus, after his father died, and we don't have much information about Joseph at all, but at whatever point Joseph died, Jesus was in charge as the oldest son of the care of his mother and his brothers and his sisters or half-brothers and sisters. Now, I know this is pure speculation and you don't have to believe a bit of it. But there had to have been times in my thinking that Jesus performed supernatural acts or received supernatural results to provide for the care of his family there may have been times when his half-brothers or sisters or maybe his mother had contracted some sickness. I'm not talking about some long-term thing, but something like the flu or whatever. And he would have ministered to them. Whatever did or didn't happen, she knew his words were important. And she knew his words were to be followed in this example of the shortage of wine for the wedding feast. Now, folks, it doesn't seem to me that the wine 
or the amount of wine would be something that would be so critical as to bring about a miracle of God. It seems to me that the easiest way or the simplest way or the most common way for this to have gone would be for somebody to stand up and say, I'm so sorry, but we're out of wine. But she considered, and it had to be as a result of her experience, she considered this impossible situation to be something that Jesus could impact or could influence. And therefore she said to the servants, whatever he tells you to do, do it. Whatever he tells you to do, do it. Now, folks, why did the angel Gabriel come to Mary and tell her the things that God wanted to do? We would have to recognize that there is no greater act of God's interaction or dealings with man than the appearance or the coming of the Messiah. This is something that God had planned before the foundations of the world. The Bible tells us Jesus was slain before the foundations of the earth. This was God's ultimate plan coming into fruition. And it would be easy for us to say, because God intended for this to happen, because he prophesied for it to happen, because it was the central issue to redeem man from sin and death, it would be easy for us to assume that he and his sovereign dealings with man, his sovereign power, would just make this happen. But he had to get Mary's consent. Here's a 15 or 16-year-old girl that the future of the world rests on her shoulders. She assents to what God's plan and will and purpose is and says, be it unto me even as you have spoken. Now, why is it necessary for him to get Mary's assent? Because the Bible says that man has authority on the earth. Genesis 1.26, and God said, let us make man in our own image after our own likeness and let them have dominion over the works of our hands. Mary's authority had to be exercised in line with God's plan and purpose, in line with God's will to bring about the most important thing that ever took place relative to redemption, God's plan of redemption. And this identifies for us the way that God's will works. As the angel Gabriel revealed God's will and God's purpose and God's plan to Mary, she had a choice. Do I accept what God's will is or do I reject it? And that's the way the will of God works in every area and every aspect of our human lives here on the earth. For example, Paul wrote to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2, and about verse 4 it says that God will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. In other words, God's will is first revealed by his word, and then man decides either through the exercise of his authority or the lack of exercise of his authority, whether or not the will of God will come to pass on their behalf. Now, anything else in the Bible that would contradict the truth that the Holy Ghost brings to us, that it's the will of God for all men to be saved, would have to be abandoned 
I know a lot of people in the church, the modern church world, and this goes back a couple of thousand years as well. But there are a lot of people that think whatever God's will, God's sovereign will dictates, that's the way it's going to go. But man is the one that has authority on the earth. Psalm 115 says that the heaven, even the heavens, are God's, but the earth he's given to the children of men. So man's authority rules. Man's authority determines whether the will of God will be performed or not. We have countless scriptures that indicate to us God's will and plan and purpose. Even the scriptures that pertain to the Messiah, Isaiah chapter 53, for example, tells us Jesus was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with or by his stripes we are healed. That tells us the work of the Messiah, or in other words, the will of God for man here on the earth. But those things don't just automatically happen to you because Jesus performed them. The will of God is revealed to us, but it's up to us to exercise our authority one way or the other. To either have it or to reject it. God's not picking winners and losers. Through Jesus, he's made everybody a winner. But it's left up to us to exercise that authority. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. The last couple of verses of the chapter. Verse 28, it says, And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Notice the word one is in the italics in the King James that we read from, which means the translators added the word to help us understand and gain understanding of the meaning of the verse. There are a lot of places where they added a word here and there that does help to bring us to greater understanding. But this isn't one of them. Here where it says, he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. This literally means the words, the Greek words that are used. It literally means he taught them how to hold authority. Now the holding of authority is the same thing as the execution of authority. He taught them how to hold authority and not as the scribes. Notice they were astonished at his doctrine. They weren't astonished at him. And in most of the, the situations identified in the four Gospels where Jesus was teaching, he identified himself as the Son of Man, not the Son of God. There are 65 times that he refers to himself, well, there are 60 times that he refers to himself as the Son of Man, and only five times he refers to himself as the Son of God. And three of those five times are in the same situation at the same time. Why does he identify with the Son of Man more so than the Son of God? Because man is the one that has authority on the earth. Jesus didn't just come to the earth and proclaim that he was the Messiah and so everybody would follow me. Jesus taught the people that they had authority. They were the ones that decided whether the will of God would come to pass in their lives or not. Jesus spent a lot of time speaking on authority. He spent a lot of his ministry teaching that man had authority on the earth. And every time he came into contact with somebody that exercised or understood the exercise of authority, he commended them. You may remember the centurion in the next chapter, Matthew chapter 8, the centurion that had a servant that was homesick. He sent for Jesus, and Jesus said that he would come and heal the, the centurion. Now, the centurion had done a lot of good things concerning the, begin, the uh, building of the synagogue and support for the synagogue. 
in the city of Capernaum. And just as God told Abraham, I'll bless those that bless you and curse those that curse you. The centurion was in position through his acts toward the Jews to receive the blessing of Abraham, which certainly uh, contains healing for the sick. So when Jesus said that he would come and heal his servant, he says there's no need for that. And his, his explanation for that was an understanding of authority. He said, I'm a man under authority, having servants and soldiers under me. If I tell one to go, he goes and does what I tell him. If I tell one to come, then he comes when I call him. And Jesus marveled at him and said, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And so he turned to the centurion and said, as you have believed, go your way. And his servant was healed in the selfsame hour, the Bible says. Now, Jesus expected, rightly so, but expected to find this kind of faith among the Jews. Because the Jews had, for the entirety of their existence, the blessing and the favor of God upon them through the keeping or through the obedience of the word of the law of Moses, which is all they had at the time. But he didn't find much faith among the Jews. But whenever he did find somebody with faith, he marveled and they received supernatural and even miraculous results. Now some look at the results Jesus got and say that was the sovereignty of God that brought those things into being. And the people that failed to receive, they blame that on the sovereignty of God. God picked some people to have results and denied those results to others. But folks, again, we have to go to the Word and find out what the will of God says. What is God's will? Is He willing for everybody to have the same results? Or is He willing for some people to have certain things that Jesus paid the price for and not others or not everyone? Well, the Bible says God's no respecter of persons. If that is true, then that means he wants the same good things for everybody, not just certain ones. The best evidence that God wants you healed is that God healed somebody else. Because as a respecter of persons, he would be required to provide the same things the same healing, the same benefits, the same provision, the same forgiveness of sin for everyone and not just one or not just the lucky ones. So what do we see? We see that God declares his will and then leaves it up to us to either accept it or to reject it. Mary said, be it unto me even as you have spoken. Be it unto me even as you have spoken. Be it unto me even as you have spoken. I wish the Bible gave us more information about the early life of Jesus. I wish the Bible told us what supernatural results occurred in Jesus' household among his mother and his half-brothers and sisters. But there had to be something. There had to be some evidence, some experience that Mary had that would cause her to tell the servants in a completely common, human, earthly manner, whatever he tells you to do, do it. She expects things to change. She expects results. She expects him to, to provide more wine for the wedding feast. 
She expects that as identified by the things that she said. Now, Jesus begins his ministry. As I said, the turn the water into wine was the first miracle that he performed. But we know of other miracles that took place, healings, signs, and wonders that took place throughout the two and a half to three years of his ministry on, on earth. And sometime toward the latter part of his ministry, the Bible says that Jesus was teaching and he was saying things hard to understand. Things like eating his flesh and drinking his blood, which was certainly contrary to the law of Moses, but he didn't mean that in a literal sense. He was talking about accepting the sacrifice of his body and his blood to bring about redemption for mankind. But he got to one place, and it says his brothers and his mother, his half-brothers and sisters and his mother were talking among themselves, and they said, he's going too far. He's going too far. People are calling him crazy. People are saying that he had a devil by casting out the devil. And so they called for him. They wanted him to come out of the house where he was, the place where he was teaching the, the crowds. They wanted him to come out and talk to him because they wanted to, to tell him that he's going too far. Preach what you want but you can't go past a certain line. Well, it wasn't their place to determine what that line would be. And so Jesus looked around at the people that were gathered to hear him speak. And he said, these that keep the word are my mother and brothers. Now, folks, how did, you, how did Mary go in the space of a couple of years? How did she go from expecting wine to be provided miraculously for the feast in wedding, the wedding feast in Cana to the place where she's saying he's going too far. The best evidence we have from historical documents is that none of Jesus' brothers and sisters or half-brothers and sisters followed him or became part of the company that he kept. Now, after he's raised from the dead, historical documents tell us that he appeared to James, his half-brother, and that James subsequently received salvation and became the, the first pastor of the church in Jerusalem. He's the one that wrote the book that bears his name, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, excuse me. But we don't have any record otherwise of any of his brothers and sisters who accepted him during his earthly ministry. Think about that. If you want anybody saved, it'd be your family. And whatever took place whatever supernatural or miraculous results took place that were the basis for Mary saying whatever he says to you, do it. Those didn't convince his brothers and sisters. Mary, of course, didn't leave him. She wound up coming back to follow him and she's one of the three people that saw him die on the cross that were present when his spirit left his body. What could change Mary from the John chapter 2 experience to the place where she agrees with the other children her other children that Jesus has gone too far. Folks, what you hear is of vital importance. Mary's half-brothers and sisters 
didn't have her experience. They hadn't seen and heard from the angel Gabriel about the Holy Spirit overshadowing her. I wonder if she told them any of these things. What would that be like? If she did tell them these things, her testimony wasn't enough to keep them steady. And it seems that Mary was carried away by the influence of the other children, her other children. Again, Jesus' half-brothers and sisters. And Jesus said, take heed what you hear. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. So the words of faith that you hear will produce faith in your heart. It can totally bypass your mind and deposit faith in God in your very spirit being. But if faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word, then faith goes by not hearing. You can build doubt and unbelief in your heart just as well as you can faith. You can exercise your authority here on the earth in either direction you choose. Even the direction of faith so that you can know and experience the will of God in your life. Or you can build doubt and unbelief and pass up on every miracle blessing that Jesus paid, paid for on the cross. It's your call. Whatever you, whatever you hear will be produced in your heart. So you can listen to the word of God. You can exercise your authority by speaking the word of God to receive the good things that Jesus purchased for us. Or you can exercise your authority to hear anything and everything else except what the word says. And that too is the exercise of your authority. We've been made in the image of God, folks. Whether we manifest that image of God in our lives is a direct result of what we hear. Whether we hear the truth or whether we hear a lie. One of the things that I've been reminded of here in recent weeks is that the devil sure knows who's ready to listen to a lie. People that would not have listened to a lie weeks or months ago. The devil knows your weak spots and he knows when you're ready to listen to the wrong thing. I would imagine that Jesus' half-brothers and sisters thought they had his best interest in heart, thought they were taking action that would be for Jesus and his well-being instead of against him. But again, Jesus determined and revealed that those that honor the word those that keep his commandments, those are the ones that are truly his family. So Jesus went to the cross. He died virtually alone. There were three who were not afraid to stay at the foot of the cross while he was on it. His mother, Mary, Mary Magdalene, and John. And as such, John was told by Jesus to behold Mary, his mother. 
And he told Mary, his mother, behold thy son. Now that went completely contrary to the laws and customs of the Jews. Because if the, if the father died, then the eldest son became the caretaker of the family. And if the eldest son died, then the next eldest son would be given that responsibility to take care of the family that was left or the family that remained. But Jesus turned that around. He said, Mary, you're now the mother of one who kept my word. To John, he said, because you have kept my word, I place my mother in your care. What a place of honor that is. You can understand, at least partly, I guess, the reverence that the Roman Catholic Church gives and places upon Mary. They go too far in recognizing Mary and exalting Mary above Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the way to God, not Mary. But she was highly favored. And she was faithful in carrying out her part in God's great plan of redemption. Paul reveals to us that by Jesus' holiness, he made an exchange of righteousness for sin and death. Jesus was made righteous. I'm sorry, Jesus was made to be sin. And we were made to be righteous. If there's anything that's ever been impressed upon me by God himself, it is this divine exchange. I think most people, and I fell into this category as well for a long time, I think most people think that God just laid sin over on Jesus like you'd put a cloak over somebody's shoulder. But folks, if that is the case, then our righteousness is not truly of God himself. That righteousness is not something we become but it would be something that's laid over on our own shoulders like a cloak. But instead, the Bible says God made sin, Jesus to be sin. He changed his nature. He went from true and absolute holiness, true and absolute righteousness, to true and absolute sin. His nature changed. And folks, that's why Jesus is sweating drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's not just looking for a way to pass the time until he dies on the cross. He is literally being made sin. He's taking upon himself every sinful act created by man Every evil thought, every evil desire, every aspect of unrighteousness that there is. And he knows, though the disciples did not, he knows that there's a greater price to be paid over a three-day period after his spirit leaves his physical body. He, he knows that for three days and nights he is going to be pounded upon by the wrath of God.
the scriptures that refer to some of these things, the words are translated in the, from the King James or into the King James as breakers. And the understanding of that is like the waves of the ocean, one after another, crashing onto the shore. In the same way, the wrath of God crashed upon him, wave after wave after wave. For three days and nights, he suffered a horrible punishment that no man could endure on his own. And the Bible says it pleased God to bruise him. It says it pleased God to bring his wrath down upon his son. Not because God is sadistic, but because he looks forward to you and me and mankind having the opportunity to become part of his family. So Jesus suffers unmentionable, indescribable punishment for the sins of mankind. Folks, that's why the resurrection is such a joyful event. When Jesus finishes these things, he comes back to the earth to pick up his body and then to ascend into heaven. And those first few experiences that he has in greeting his disciples Matthew gives the account of when Jesus is raised from the dead he appears to his disciples and says all hail a declaration of joy on his part knowing that the price was paid Now here's the part where most people get hung up. When Jesus was made to be sin, when Jesus takes upon himself and his nature becomes the nature of death, spiritual death itself. And remember that the definition of spiritual death is separation from God. Jesus comes to the place by willingly putting his life in God's hands. He comes to the place where the absence of life, the absence of spiritual life, eternal life, keeps him from being able to save himself. At that moment, the very second when the price is paid, the life of God enters back into him. His nature is changed once again. And the Bible calls that being born again. Jesus was the firstborn among many brethren. Jesus has the same spiritual rebirth as you and I have. when we accept him as our savior. Jesus had to become, had to be born again because he had surrendered his life and his body to sin and spiritual death. I know that's blasphemous to some, but remember, God wants us to not only be saved, but to come to the knowledge of the truth. Your righteousness was purchased with such a high price.
than to think casually that, yeah, we've been forgiven from sin, but that's it. That's when you're approaching blasphemy. Our righteousness is of him because of the price that he paid, because of the awful cost of sin and death. But now we can rejoice, for he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Righteousness is accomplished. Righteousness is in effect. Righteousness has been paid for. And that's why the Last Supper was so important to Jesus. Because he wanted his disciples to understand that he was going to pay the price for them. They got all upset when Jesus said, I'm going to go away, but I'll return in a little while. That little while he's talking about was the three days and nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus came to the place where his whole purpose for being here on the earth would be fulfilled. He knew the agony that he would suffer, but he couldn't let himself draw back from it. He knew with his eyes wide open that in order for redemption to be satisfied, in order for the price of redemption to be paid, he was going to have to subject himself to the wrath of God. And God couldn't cut any corners for him. He had to leave him paying the price, the awful price that it is, and to complete it to its fullness. Jesus is in the belly of the earth and he cries out my God, my God why hast thou forsaken me? He said that on the cross too and apparently him becoming sin or his nature changed from righteousness to sin nature is told us so that we know that he's completely separated from God. What love God must have had for his son. Who willingly subjected himself. And submitted himself. To paying the price for sin and death. Jesus said God loves us the same way. Jesus said that the supernatural results we get from operating in his word, keeping his word, believing and trusting in him brings about the same love for us as he had for his son. We don't have a second rate or a second generation new birth. We have the same exact new birth that Jesus has himself. Folks, if Jesus was not born again, then he didn't really pay the price for sin. But because he did pay the price for sin and death, we can be born again. We see scriptures like in John chapter 14, verse 12, I think it is. Jesus said, the works that I do shall you do also. Because I go unto my Father. 
We look at things like that and we think, how in the world can that possibly apply to us? But thinking like that is a failure on our part to understand what righteousness produces. The righteousness that was paid for by Jesus suffering the wrath of God makes us God beings. Jesus was all God and all man. And Paul said those that are born again become new creatures. One translation says a new species of being. You know what that species of being is? It's Jesus. We gain the same right. We gain the same position. We gain the same holiness that Jesus himself had. We enter into a day in this new covenant where the miraculous can be commonplace. Where the daily results of our walking with God produces supernatural results. All because we've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. That's what these communion elements signify. They signify the life of God that was purchased by the body and the blood of Jesus. They signify the miraculous which we now walk in because we are this new species of being. Divine beings. God beings. All because of what Jesus paid for us. Gentlemen, if you'll come forward, we'll wait upon the people. Is the flow that 
Bible tells us that on the night Jesus was born, there was great rejoicing in heaven, and the angels came to the earth to deliver good news to the shepherds. The Bible also tells us that Jesus viewed the Last Supper with his disciples as a time of rejoicing. The disciples were sorrowful because they only looked at things from the earthly or the human side. But Jesus took great pleasure in fulfilling what God sent him to the earth to do. Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, said, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Father, in Jesus' name, we receive this which represents Jesus' body. And we receive our healing in the same manner. Thank you, Father. For this bread that strengthens us, that helps us, that upholds us, that leads us into the completion and full measure of your will. In Jesus' name, let's receive the bread. After the same manner also, he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. Father, we receive this cup, which represents Jesus' blood. Therefore, it represents our righteousness, it represents our holiness. It represents our relationship with you as our Father and we as your children. Thank you, Father, for the precious cost, for the great price that our redemption was paid for, the price of Jesus' blood. We receive this blood, this symbol of the blood of Jesus with a recognition of the great blessings and the great responsibility that we have in his name. Let's receive the cup. Let's all stand, please. We celebrate this Christmas time when Jesus came to the earth. He came for this purpose, to deliver us unto the Father. He came for the purpose of making us righteous. We have much to celebrate. 
because of who we are in Christ. Let's pray one closing prayer, please. Father, we bless you for your great plan of redemption. Jesus, we honor you for being faithful to accomplish what you were sent to the earth to do. Holy Spirit, we thank you as well for guiding us into all truth. Father, we pray that this Christmas, unlike any other before, that we would see with our eyes wide open your plan and your purpose for us as a church family and as children of God. Open our eyes, Lord, to the lateness of this hour and the work that is yet to be done. We thank you, Father, for supernaturally equipping us by your Spirit that we may walk in these things to the fullest measure. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you, folks. Come on back and be with us for Christmas Eve service, if you can, on Friday night.